when I was a senior, I got a, an interview at Condé Nast and I went to Condé Nast in New York and I remember this, I don't remember anything about the interview at all, but I remember sitting in the waiting room and looking around and being like, everyone here is rich and went to an Ivy League school and I'm neither of those things and there's no way in hell I can get this job. And even if I did get this job, I couldn't afford to live in New York City with what they were gonna pay me, which was nothing. Welcome to the Job Speakers Podcast. My name is Robert Hendrickson, and every week I find a new guest to provide priceless career and life advice, one job at a time. The clip you just heard is from our guest this week, David Connell. And it probably won't surprise you to learn that David did not get the Condé Nast job. But a theme that you might hear with some of our guests and how they talk about their journeys is, when one door closes, another opens. In this episode, Dave will walk through his career path. He'll talk about the doors that have opened. He'll also address how he has progressively gained more responsibility and what that's meant to him as someone in the beginning of the process, but also as a leader now towards the end of the process, at least up till now. Dave is a fountain of information if you're interested in the digital communication space, but as all of our guests do, he covers things that apply to all of us. I hope you enjoy the episode. Good morning, Dave. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. I really appreciate it. Can you tell us what you do for a living? Uh, yeah. So I am um, the director of digital communications uh, for the Urban Institute. Um, and the Urban Institute for for your listeners who don't know, which is probably many, <laughs> uh, is a um, it's a DC-based uh, research institution. Um, some people might say it's a think tank, but we refer to it as research-based institution, and we look at um, public policy issues, uh, primarily in the United States, that um, uh, you know that affect the economy, that affect people's well-being. And we look at both the problem and the solution and, and use uh, a research-based and fact-based uh, evidence to, to find solutions to problems like homelessness, uh, the wealth gap, um, unemployment, and you know, increasingly with, with, uh, with COVID, sort of the, the, the recovery. Uh, so that's, yeah, so that's what the Urban Institute is. And, and I'm their director of digital communications. So I run their website and some, uh, their digital marketing campaigns or digital communications campaigns, uh, their newsletters, Twitter, advertising, uh, Facebook, social media. I have a staff of um, about six to 10 folks who, who, work, who work for me. Give us a sense for your typical day. So my typical day now, <laughs> uh, over the last year, is a little bit different, I would say, than than a typical day when we were back in the office. But um, you know, the other thing that we're doing right now is we're we are getting ready to to launch a new website in in the spring. Um, so a lot of my time has been consumed with um, getting that project uh, up and running and 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 out the door. So I've been working on that for about a year and a half, actually. So a typical day is, is uh, from a work perspective, is spent doing morning meetings. So I have a morning meeting with our, with our staff and we will uh, go through the day, what, what it is we're publishing that day, um, what it is we are um, putting out for the newsletters that day, what events we're having that day. 
and just kind of what the what the run of show, if you will, is for that day. And, and that's the content that we're putting out. Um, make sure everybody's on the same page. We're getting the drafts in uh, that we need to get in. We're getting the production done on the site pages, on the newsletter, what have you. So that will be, you know, the morning meeting. It's we have a it's a stand up meeting, and then after that, you know, we'll we'll start executing. And a lot of the way we execute now is uh, via Slack, uh, it's via email, and it's and it's via Zoom. Our newsletter team starts getting content together, starts getting drafts together. They're sending that to folks for approvals. Our researchers, uh, me and and some other folks, to make sure that everything is right before scheduling to send. That's a that that's sort of one example of 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 what we're doing, and that's all done on Slack. And then you know there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of meetings um, as well for long term projects. So so today at at noon I'm going to have a sprint planning meeting for the next round of work on this new website. And so I'll be there, the developers will be there, the designers will be there, and we'll decide for the next two weeks what what are we shipping for the new website? What chunk of con what chunk of the site are we going to ship? And then, you know, I think I try to reserve, it's hard, but I try to reserve every day for two hours of deep work. And I think that's something that is, is really difficult in um, today's environment, both with COVID and just, just generally, you know, with Slack and email and everything. But I try to do a couple hours of deep work where I'm planning for the future. I'm thinking about what our goals are for the site. I'm thinking about what our rollout schedule is for the website. Um, when we do launch. So, so that I think is a, is a pretty typical work day. One thing I want to say, and, and I, I, this will hopefully be a theme throughout is I really, my work day begins at eight 30 and ends at five, five 30. I very rarely work past six and I never, and I very, and I never ask my staff to work past five 30 or six. I think it's really important, especially with COVID, especially with everybody working from home, that we have a work-life balance. And that is something that I find uh, super important for my own career, but I also find it's really important for the folks who work for me. And by that, I mean, everything goes off by six o'clock. There's no email, there's no Slack, there's no nothing after six o'clock other than doing what, what it is you personally want to do. I have so many questions, so I'll take them one <laughs> okay. at a time. Great. First one is, how do you know you and your team are doing a good job? What are the things that you look for to sort of evaluate you and your team's performance? That's an awesome question. So, and it's one I get all the time. So, so our website is is a little bit. We're a nonprofit, so we we do often get pigeonholed when I talk about websites and nonprofit. People are like. How much money do you raise online? That's sort of like the, the, the default metric for a nonprofit website. Our, our nonprofit is a little bit different. We actually don't rely on individual donations to, to fund our business. Most of our work is funded by large philanthropic organizations that you hear. Like I always, I always call them the NPR donors. Like, so like, you know, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, those types of places that donate to NPR, they also give urban you know, a, a large bit of our, our funding. We also work for the government. So we'll, we do work for uh, HUD, the housing and urban development. Um, we do, we do work for, for other government organizations when they have, when they have a policy that they want to implement and they want to know how it's going to work or if it's going to work, sometimes urban will do that analysis. 
So individual fundraising is not one of our metrics, which I love uh, personally. Uh, fundraising online is hard and it's not something that I'm awesome at. I'm fairly decent and I've done it in my past. So, but what we really, our metric for success is influence. So what we're trying to do at Urban every day is understand what the policy implications are, understand how folks, uh, everyday folks are going to be affected by a policy implication, and then get our findings to the right people. So the right people are often journalists who will cite us in their stories about the COVID relief bill. They are policymakers on the Hill. So, so you know, not the senator, but the people who work for the senator. And they are administration staff, people who work um, you know, for, the, for the current administration um, in HUD and in some of these other federal organizations. So our metrics for success is a lot of traffic base. So like, is traffic on the site going up? How many people have read that blog post? How many people have downloaded that report? But a lot of it is also like, did we get it into the hands of the right people? Did our external affairs team have what they needed when they went to the Hill to get it to that person? Did somebody from HUD, you know, take our report and, and include it in a PowerPoint presentation? The very like micro um, success metrics as well as sort of macro success metrics about like time on site, um, page views per day, that type of thing. When we used to live pretty, pretty close to each other, if memory serves, you were the guy writing the content. Now you're the mm -hmm. director with six to 10 people. Are yeah. you still in the content creation mode or have you had to move towards a more of a, a leader mentor role? Can you talk a little bit about that trend, that transition? Yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah. I, I don't write anything anymore ever. <laughs> um, at least not for work. I don't except emails and, and Slack messages um, and PowerPoint decks. So yeah, so no, I, I, I am, I, you know, I'm the director. I'm the person who, um, who, who helps clear space for the writer. I'm the person who helps um, implement processes for the editors so that, um, they, that, so that they're getting stuff edited efficiently. Um, and, I'm the, and I'm the person who helps set up the, the strategy for the email outreach. And that type of thing. Um, so it's yeah, it's been a transition throughout my career to to kind of go from being a content creator to being someone who is who is managing content creators. And I think um, one of the things that's interesting about that transition, and that I think folks you know who who want to get into digital um, often struggle with, is is when you go through that transition, there's often a point where you're doing both at the same time. Um, and I went through that. Uh, through that point at, at the Nature Conservancy, which was which is where I worked earlier, where I was both managing a lot of content and managing a lot of processes and managing an employee, but also being a content creator, also writing blog posts and and that that sort of thing. And especially in the nonprofit world, there's just a lot of that where where as you move up in into in your career, you're asked to continue to do some of the things that you did earlier in your career. And that's because, you know, nonprofit is, is there's staffing issues and there's, there's budgetary issues. And it's, it's not um, a place where, you know, where it, you know, hiring staff is a big deal for a nonprofit. So, um, so yeah. If I had the, the luxury of just getting your team kind of aside without you there, if I, if I asked them, 
pick three words just to describe David, what would those three words be, do you think? Oh my goodness. That's an interesting question. Hands off, energetic, and trusting. I would hope those are the three words that they would pick. I don't know if they would be. Those are the three, those are the three words that I that I think tr- I try to to instill in my in my management. Um, I really, I really, really always try to hire folks who are gonna be able to work independently and do great work without without a ton of oversight. It's not that I don't want to be there for folks. Of course I want to be there for folks, but I want folks to really feel like they own what it is that they do and own the strategy for what it is that they do. And I, I, I try to create guardrails for, for where they can operate. And then I also try to create cover. I try to insulate folks from some of the bureaucracy, some of the, you know, things that come down from the top, right. And give them space to, and give them space to work. We're speaking on a Monday morning in four and a half days, you wrap up a week. When you think about that time where you're sort of unplugging, can you tell us something that in your mind would have made that week amazing for you and your team? Oh yeah, sure. So, so there's a lot of, my job's cool because like we have a lot of immediate feedback and then we have a lot of long-term planning. So I'll, I'll try to do one of each. So like, you know, we're, we send out, you know, three newsletters a day with, you know, our social media you know, person's doing, you know, multiple tweets every, you know, every day. Um, so there's a lot of like instant communication that's going out, right? This sort of like level, there's, we, we publish two blog posts a day and it's just like this level of stuff that's going on. And then we have the long-term planning of like, what's the website going to look like in, in April and when are we going to launch it and how are we going to market it and that type of thing. So I think, you know, on Friday, if I look back on Friday and we had a really solid citation from a major media outlet, the New York Times, Washington Post, something like that. That would be a solid win. If we had one of our tweets retweeted from a member of Congress, that's a solid win. And if we have a new content type for the new website built out and ready to test, that would be like a three, that would be a, a three star, three out of three, three, three star three. week. Yeah, for sure. If there's one thing you could change about your job, what would that be? If there was one thing I could change about my job, I think it would be that it could be more focused. So one of the things that's interesting about urban um, is we have 10 different policy centers and each of those has, you know, a dozen issues that they're looking into. And it's very hard for me and, and my team and, and the communications team at, at large, because there's a whole, you know, beyond just the digital portion, there's a whole body of communicators um, that are working for us. It's hard for us to give equal attention to all of those folks and all of those things and all of those issues. And we do have to pick and choose, right? We have to pick and choose based on what folks in Washington are talking about. Um, we have to pick and choose based on what the organization wants to talk about. And we have to pick and choose based on what our funders want. You know, a lot of the work that I, that I do and my team does is based on a funder uh, uh, desire and, and something that they've honestly paid us to do. Um, you know, we get funders pay us to build websites for, for a program. So I would, I would love to, to, 
if if I could be a little more focused in in some of the work that we do and and have long-term campaigns for some for some of these issues. What my I've never worked at a newspaper. I've never done digital communications for for a news organization. I was a journalist way, way, way back when. Uh, but I do liken our site to a newspaper website and in in the breadth of his content, in the in the amount of content and that and that type of thing. So it is very uh, it is very open. It's very scattered. Before we kind of look back on your career, you mentioned that you've managed to set aside ideally a couple of hours a day to do what I think you said deep planning and 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 that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. On a practical basis, any tips for for my audience that got you to really protecting that time? Because I think we all would like to do that, or we all think about doing it. But there's a big difference between that getting through the end of that week and realizing I should have, but I didn't. Can you speak a little bit to how you've managed to carve out that time? I think that's essential to so mm-hmm. many jobs and so little of it actually happens. So, yeah, there's a few things. So I think one thing is our organization actually has made a commitment to it. So our organization has uh, instituted uh, meeting free Tuesdays. So every Tuesday, um, urban urban wide you are you are highly discouraged from scheduling meetings now i do have one standing meeting on tuesday uh with with an external vendor we're we're building a a a website with a research partner and we have an external vendor who's helping us do the build so i have a i have a a a standing half half an hour with that vendor on tuesday but other than that it's it's meeting free so first of all there's an organizational commitment Second of all, there's a commitment from, from my boss to allow this to, to happen, right? So, so she, she's awesome. She's somebody who I worked with at the Nature Conservancy prior to this and, and, and now I've worked with at Urban for a long time. And she always has this saying, it's like, we're not saving lives here, right? And I, that's not to diminish the work that we do, but it also level sets the work that we do. And so an immediate response is not always necessary. An immediate reaction is not always necessary. And an email can sit for, for 24 hours without anyone dying or, or, or losing a ton of money, right? So there's that sort of, you know, expectation across the team for that. And then it's, I, it's honestly, it's a, it's a personal expectation that I've made clear to folks as well. And I make it clear on my calendar. I go in and I block off time uh, in my calendar for those two hours. I block off every day at noon I have an hour blocked off from 12 to one. Now, like, will I give up that time for a meeting if it's essential? Sure. I'll give up that time for a meeting if it's essential. But like, I think you have to be a little bit selfish and it's, it's selfishness for, for the greater good. Hopefully you're doing good work and, and doing something meaningful with that time. I'm trying to, to pinpoint the date when you would be about 10 years old, but we'll leave that off because <laughs> we've all gotten a little older. 86. 86. I was born in 76, so 86. Summarize the journey for us. What what you want to do, you know, when you first think back to to you know when you grew up, right? That saying and help us understand some some of those landing points, but also those pivot mm-hmm. points where you felt were particularly important as you look back at your career. When I was 10, I I you, I I cheated a little bit because I listened to some some of your podcasts, right? And I heard this question before when I was on the bike this morning. I was like, oh, how did I answer that? So when I, it's funny because I made me, I, I 
got me thinking when I, when I was 10, I grew up in a really rural part of Pennsylvania and like, I didn't have any career ambitions when I was 10. I spent a lot of time, um, outside running around playing army with my friends and just like, you know, throwing rocks and sticks in the woods. I think <laughs> that's my memory of it anyway. But I do remember one thing that was, that was funny is I had this knack for like memorizing commercial jingles. So my parents were always like, oh, you're going to go into advertising when you grow up because you can memorize these commercial jingles. Um, and then in high school, again, like I really, I, I did not. And I think this is like, I think this is good and bad, right? Like I, I didn't have any career ambitions. I was like, I need to get, I need to get, and I was, I'm a Gen Xer. So it's a lot, it was a ton easier. Look, dude, I look at some, I look at what the millennials and the Gen Z's have to do to like get a career. And I'm just so thankful that I grew up when I did. Cause like Gen Xers, it was like, look, you need to get a 3.5 GPA in high school. You need to go to college. And then like, you can figure it out when you get to college. And that was very much the attitude, at least my memory of the attitude as a Gen Xer. So in high school, I was like, I just need to get a 3.5 and then I'm going to go to college and then I'll figure it out in college. So that's what I did. And then when I got to college, um, I did start to think about what I wanted to do. And I really, I really enjoyed writing, as you mentioned earlier. So I went to Dickinson College, which is a small liberal arts school in Pennsylvania. I was an English major, which uh, I think is, I think a liberal arts major um, at the time, I, I hope so still, is a great major to have because it opens, it opens you up to a lot of different possibilities and it teaches you a lot of great things. It teaches you how to do critical thinking. It teaches you how to write. It teaches you how to make an argument, um, which I think you know can translate across many different careers. So as an English major, I really enjoyed writing and I was like, I wanna be a writer. I wanna be, I wanna be a magazine writer. Like that's what I wanna be. I wanted to write for like Esquire or the New Yorker or whatever. I actually got, when I was, when I was a senior, I got a, an interview at Condé Nast and I went to Condé Nast in New York and I remember this, I don't remember anything about the interview at all, but I remember sitting in the waiting room and looking around and being like, everyone here is rich and went to an Ivy League school and I'm neither of those things. And there's no way in hell I can get this job. And even if I did get this job, I couldn't afford to live in New York City with what they were going to pay me, which was nothing to start, right? Like, I mean, it was, you know, so I was like, well, I can't do this. This is not a possibility. So I decided that I was going to go to Washington, D.C. because I had a friend who was going to Georgetown at the time and he was going to let me crash in his apartment. And I literally got like a job writing for uh, a trade publication. In Washington, D.C., there's lots of these little trade publications that actually pay pretty well and they teach you how to do journalism. And so mine was covering the satellite television industry, which is like crazy, right? And then like super dry and whatever. But there was, at the time, there was this big bill going through Congress called the Satellite Home Viewer Act. And it's basically what made DirecTV a viable business because it allowed them to have networks on the satellite um, and compete with cable. So I got to watch that whole process go through. But I also realized that journalism was just like not for me. It was a lot of hustle. It was a lot of um, a lot of late nights, not a great amount of pay. I didn't enjoy asking people questions, probing questions, right? Like hard questions. Uh, it just was like, it just wasn't for me. So I met my wife through that job and we got married and, and, you know, 
neither Tracy nor I are, are too concerned with like being rich. Like we're very concerned with like having enough money for the lifestyle that we want. So, so we were like, well, what do we want to do? And she had a good job and I had a decent job, but I was like, I'm not really happy. I've always wanted to write. And she's like, well, why don't you just do it? So I quit my job and I got my master's of fine arts in fiction from American university. And I went for two years and I wrote a novel at AU and did like the whole writing workshop thing. And during that time, I, we, I still needed to make money because we had a, you know, we had that one bedroom apartment in Arlington that needed the, needed the rent. So I started working for a, a um, small association that was, that was an association for uh, life insurance salesmen. And they, and I was a writer for their magazine and they needed a website. And I was like, I, I don't know, like I can do that. And there was another designer there or a designer there who's like, yeah, let's you and I team up for this. And so we teamed up on this and, and with the help and encouragement from our two bosses and we created a website for, for NAFA, the National Associations of Insurance and Financial Advisors. And that's kind of what got me started. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. I can do like, this is super creative. I get to work with super creative people, content. Like there's a whole content strategy that goes on with this. There's a design strategy that goes on with this and it pays money. Unlike this like creative writing gig, which I don't know how the hell I'm going to make any money off of this. You know, I finished that novel, I graduated and I was just like, yeah, no, I, I actually want to do this, this, this digital stuff. And that, that's, that was like the inflection point for me and kind of like sent me on that, on that trajectory from there. I want to hear a little bit more about the jobs you had from there kind of leading up to present, Mm -hmm. but I got a chance to learn something new about you. And that is that you wrote a novel. You yes. got to you got to tell me a little bit more. How <laughs> how long was that thing and what was it about and is it even available to purchase today or is it just a school project? It's not very long. It's it's a couple hundred, I think it's like 250 to 250 pages. So it's pretty thin. It is it's actually I would say it's a it, novel might be the wrong term. It's I think it's a short story cycle is is how I would actually term it. Um and it is about a family uh, the history of a family in the Chesapeake Bay area who starts out as a, as a, their family business is, is, is poaching ducks on the Chesapeake Bay. And so this is a real thing. Don't laugh. I see you laughing. This is a real thing. No, no, it's totally fine. This is a real, this is a real thing that was, is actually part of our American history where like, there used to be like so many, like, migratory waterfowl in the United States that you could like, that you could make a living harvesting like hundreds in one hunt. And it was, and then sell them to restaurant suppliers, you know, in the, in the Chesapeake Bay area. And people made a living doing this. And then all of the birds started to disappear. And then they put in the Migratory Bird Act, which basically put a limit on what you could, what you could hunt. And, but people still wanted to do this. So they had all of these like crazy ways of like sneaking out at night and like making these huge, like cannon size shotguns. And I did a bunch of research on this and, and it was like a real thing. So anyway, so it, it sort of charts, it's an environmental story too. It sort of charts his family's decline as the duck population goes down. And then they have to like resort, resort to things like tourism and driving trucks. And it's kind of like the history of their family. And, and, uh, each of the stories is also based on a folk song. So the plot of a, of a folk song. So each story is based on that. And then each story is a generation through. 
So I don't know that there's much of a market for duck poaching folk song short stories out there right now, but maybe someday. So the short, the, the long story short is that it's not available for purchase. The manuscript of it, the final manuscript of it is uh, sitting in behind me in a, in a, on a shelf. And I have every once in a while wanted to kind of get it out and retype it. So Hemingway used to do this thing where he would retype all of his stories after he'd written them, like before publication, because it gave him like this note, it get, allowed him to sort of edit while he wrote. So I did, I have thought about retyping it because a soft copy doesn't even exist anymore. And then, and then self-publishing it on Amazon just for laugh, you know, and if anybody wants to, to grab it, they can. What was the title or what is the title? Oh, it's uh, the title is awesome. It's uh, it's my favorite part. It's called Songs from the Gunpowder. And there's a river, one of the tributaries to the Chesapeake Bay is the Gunpowder River in Maryland. And so I set this family in a fictional town that's on the Gunpowder River. So it's a solid title, I think. It is a solid <laughs> title. And I have some guilt feelings after I let you finish your story about uh, these migratory birds. So, uh, lesson <laughs> lesson learned for for me. Um, no, no, it's all I listen to, to you. <laughs> it is a ridiculous sounding plot for sure. I, I, I <laughs> you wrote it, and uh, and that's not easy. That's not easy. So you you learned. You mentioned before you learned that you had these other skills and interests that you could sort of co op your your writing and liberal arts skills into into to web and content development. Between that sort of point and and your current job, you mentioned the Nature Conservancy. Can you just fill in the gaps there real quick for us so people know kind of how you ended up where you where you landed today? Yeah, so I've always been in in nonprofits. Uh, that my my entire except for the my stint in journalism, which is sort of tangential to this. Um, I've always been a non nonprofit. So I worked at NAFA for um, uh, for about three years, and. There was only so much, you know, that that sort of played itself out a, a little bit because I it it wasn't, you know, a passion of mine. Certainly, um, it was a great place to work, and they, you know, God love them, they they took a chance on on me and and really started my career. But then I, I moved to a, a a company called the American Society of Landscape Architects, and landscape architecture is actually a fascinating discipline. Um, it ranges everywhere from like rich people's like landscaping they hire a landscape architect to do you know to, to to design and implement their landscaping all the way to the the design of like monument the fdr memorial in dc is a is a is a like premier example of landscape architecture the walkway that goes around the the washington monument now was designed by a really famous landscape architect and it's designed to both be ADA compliant method of getting up to the thing, but also a security barrier. So as it winds up, the walkway is a security barrier to prevent people from driving up to the Washington Monument. So it's a really fascinating and like there's a lot of nature involved and a lot of environmental work involved. So I was their web editor. So that was a lot of me writing, writing their newsletter, writing web content. I started a blog for them. Um, and uh, I did a podcast for them. So this was like in the first, the first era of podcasting when like podcasts were on, were on the iPod, right? Like the actual iPod. So I did a podcast for them. It was awesome. It was an awesome place to work. And they were just like, yeah, you can just go, you can do whatever you want, man, create content for us. And so I did that for about, for a couple of years, you know, early careers. It's like three years, two years, et cetera. 
the Nature Conservancy, I was there for, for four years. And, and that's when I started to really get into the digital strategy portion. Pardon me, the middle of my career there, I ended up being in charge of a large section of their website, their global priorities. So climate change portion of their website, the, you know, the rivers portion of the website, big chunks of it. And I had a small, uh, I had a small staff there and, and I really started to understand like, oh, this is why you create content. This is how you get people to come to it. This is how you market it. This is how you get donors, that sort of thing. But I reached a ceiling there and, and I remember like my current boss and had a really like frank conversation with me. And I think this is like an important thing too. And she was, uh, I was an associate director and I was like, I want to be a director. Like, what can I do to be a director? And the answer was nothing. She was like, there's no other place. There's no, there's nowhere else for you to go at this point, unless, you know, somebody leaves and then you can apply for that job. But I can't, I cannot promote you any higher than you are now because there's not like a director job for you. And like, sometimes that happens, you know, sometimes you just get to a point in your career where it's like, yeah, like you've reached the top of what you're going to get at this organization. And I think that's a tough it was certainly was a tough lesson for me to learn. And it was a tough conversation for me to have. But I think that's a, something that people need to understand is like, it's not enough to just do good work and to just be good. Like there has to be an opening for you. So I left there and I became the director of digital marketing at, the, at another environmental organization called the Ocean Conservancy. I was the lead for the web and I did a web redesign there. Um, I, you know, and, and, and had a staff there. And then I only did that for like a year until my boss from the nature conservancy got her job at urban and came calling. And that's another thing for everybody to understand is like, you can have that really tough conversation with somebody, stay with, stay connected with them. And then you might get a really, really great job in the future. The value and power of relationships is so is so essential to your story, right? And and I've experienced that where a former client hired me. So that that definitely resonates. If someone who has now heard you discuss his journey in the in the digital content space, you know, writing content, web web design and development, social media now, the more strategic stuff, but if if he or she tapped you on the shoulder and said Hey, Dave, I only have you for a few seconds here. What do I really need to know before I decide this path makes sense for me? How would you answer that? Oh, yeah, for sure. So I think what I would do, so there's three stools in, in like digital strategy, right? There's content, there's design, and then there's marketing. We call it communications at Urban because like marketing is kind of like a, I don't know, it's a bad word, I guess. I was, I, it's funny side, real quick side story. I was the director of digital marketing at Urban for like, two weeks. And then all the researchers were like, we're not marketing. This is, uh, we're not doing that. And so they changed it to communications. So those are the three stools, right? So it's, it's content design and marketing. So if, if somebody asked me, how do I get into this? I would say, pick one of those disciplines. Oh, and then the fourth one, sorry, uh, I code, right? Obviously building the, you know, doing the code, sorry, coders for making my website. <laughs> um, so those are the four pillars, right? Pick one of those pillars and learn about it and get into the business through one of the pillars and then try to, to and then move up from there. Like you can't learn. I don't know how to code. I, 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 I knew some HTML like back in the day, which is like completely useless now. But 
I learned through content development and I learned through creating content, then learning how to market it, then learning how to work with designers to make that content amazing. And then, you know, speaking the language, I can speak the language of, of our coders. We build our sites in Drupal so I can speak that language, but I had to learn it through a pillar that I was comfortable in and that I was interested in. So if you're interested in design, go that route. If you're interested in, in coding and interested in, in, in that, go that route. Um, if you're interested in marketing, go that route, but pick a, pick a lane and then rise up through that lane. When I was young in my career, I remember similar advice, which was be really good at something small for a while so that you gain that reputation and the leverage you need, right. To find new opportunities. Great. Okay, Dave, final question. And if you've heard a couple, you know what it is. Mm -hmm. As you reflect on your career journey, if you were to provide career advice for the entire world to hear, what would that be? My career advice would be to work to live. And that is something that I and, and my wife take to heart. And what I mean by that is don't ever get fixated on a salary. Don't ever get fixated on making more money. Be fixated on having a job that allows you to have the lifestyle that you want. Now, look, if that lifestyle is, you know, three Porsches in the driveway and, you know, a huge home, then that's, yeah, then you're going to have to work for that, right? That, but work for the lifestyle that you want, not the other way around. And that is to me how I've always lived my life is I just, I wanted to make enough money and have the type of job that allowed me to do the things that I wanted to do to raise my family, to be there for my boys, to go to their baseball games, um, but allow them to, to play baseball and play the guitar and, and give them some of the things that, that they want. And, you know, having that balance is super important to us. And I think um, it's what's made us really happy. Great, Dave, it's a real pleasure doing this Zoom, uh, second only to seeing you in person. It's been too long, thanks so much. My pleasure, man. My pleasure. Thank you, Dave, again, for being a guest on the show. It was great to see you and hear more about what you've been up to since we last lived next to each other. I'd also like to point out that Dave brings up something that uh, no one really has hit head on yet as a guest, and that is the concept or the difference between living to work and working to live. Of course, Dave has expressed his preference and how he shaped his career and his life around that. And I applaud him for it because he did it deliberately. The alternative can sometimes be what I call accidental outcomes as opposed to deliberate ones, where maybe you find yourself in a job, then you find yourself working maybe too much, and then you find yourself looking back at months or even years of time that you can't get back. So again, th I really do appreciate Dave bringing that up uh, for all of us to really think about whether we're working today or uh, entering the job market. It is important and it really speaks to how we live our lives and how we set our priorities. So a really good lesson there and something for us all to consider. Next week we have a really exciting guest. I mentioned this before. She is a published author, poet, and has written a critically acclaimed cookbook, which, you know, you just don't find guests like that every week. So I'm excited. We have our conversation uh, tomorrow, Thursday. So when Dave's episode hits that afternoon, I'll be speaking to our I guess for next week, but you'll have to tune back in to find out who it is and hear what she has to say. Until then, be good, be safe, be well, and goodbye.